Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Robert is out today, but we have a special returning guest. Pauline Vicar, Executive Director of Arini Global, the global think tank for fine wine. As avid listeners know, we spoke with Pauline in episode 28 about the research Arini did on fine wine consumers in 2019, and we're excited to learn about the new research that they've uncovered since with a new report called The Future of Fine Wine Consumers 2021, which was published in April 2021. Pauline, welcome back to the show. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me back. It's a pleasure. For those who don't know you and Arini, could you please give us a brief background on both? Yes, of course. Thank you. Well, first, maybe on Arini, the genesis of the project of that Research and Action Institute dedicated to the future of fine wine. Well, we started with two, two main starting points. The first one is the world is more and more complex and interconnected. And the second is there was no space at the time four years ago when we came up with the idea for the fine wine ecosystem and for its thought leaders in particular to come together and think and share and build the future of fine wine and build a collective vision so that we can still be here in 20 years' time. So that's when Arini came to play. And what we mainly do is we've identified six forces of change that we think have a potential impact on the future of fine wine. So that goes from what we call natural resources, so that's the environment and social sustainability, money and business models, technology, the routes to market and the geopolitics affecting wine, but also the fine wine consumers, consumers being themselves a force of change. And so in what we do, we always try to have like three levels of knowing and understanding, which is the global picture. What is the world that I'm living in? How does that impact fine wine? And what can we do about it? And since the beginning, a very important thing that we wanted to do was also break the traditional silos. The wine world is not one of the best when it comes to collaboration and working together. I know you're in California. That might be one of the regions of the world that works together the best. But mostly we're not that good into, you know, sharing information and like, you know, you are asking yourself the same question as me. Let's come together and try to find an answer that could work for us both. So that's also a prerogative in everything that we do. And and the report incorporates that is also insight from other industries or, you know, sociologists, researchers, people working in finance, people working in geopolitics, in tech, in coffee, in cannabis, in all of those industries that impact us or that could be an inspiration for us. We'll also try to bring their insight in that. And we do that mainly in organizing think tanks, platforms where we bring thought leaders and experts together. And we also produce, cla- well, research, I'm not going to say classic because they're not that classic, but research and market studies about, you know, what we've all described. And the fine wine consumers is always one of the things our members ask us the most. It's an important and, one. Yeah, and it's an important one. And so far, there hasn't been that much data focusing on that mm-hmm. particular segment, as I'm sure you know, because you, you wrote a book about it as well. <laughs> So, yes, there's loads of information about wine and wine consumers, but the fine wine segment wasn't that covered. So that's also why we launched the study in 2019 with our research partner, Mestreza, who's a fine wine merchant in, in the Place de Bordeaux. And in 2019, it was the first 
draft was mainly based on qualitative interviews and qualitative understanding of what fine wine was and how the fine wine market worked. And this year we did the thing really bigger and included a lot of quantitative data across four major markets, which are the UK, the US, China and Hong Kong. Those are the key ones. I, we were talking uh, before the recording about the MW program, and I always tell people, if you want to know the business of wine, just focus like on those four markets. <laughs> Maybe one like monopoly market like Norway or something like that, or well, Sweden, and then, yeah. You know. Well, heads up, if you're talking about distribution, because, of course, if you're talking about production, then yeah. you might want to study France, for example, you know, just, just right. <laughs> talking right, about right. your own country. <laughs> So in, in episode 28, we learned about Arini's definition for fine wine, that it was around 30 euros plus a bottle, high quality, of course. One of the unique elements, I think, was that it elicits emotion in the consumer and has a connection with the winemaker. Did this change for the new report or has it evolved over time? Well, maybe if you allow me, I could just speak up. The definition of fine wine is one of the things that we had to do first and foremost, being an institute dedicated to fine wine. Like, what the heck are we even talking about when we talk about fine wine? So we've asked 200 members of the trade to give us their definition and their understanding of the wine. And as, a, as an interesting thing, it's, it was funny to see that their own personal definition wasn't always the corporate definition of the of the company they were working in. Like usually the, the companies they're working in is really price related, but their own definition is more linked to emotion and to the relationship with the maker and etc. So the entire definition, I'm just going to read it as clearly as I can, but because it's quite long, the fine wine is complex, balanced with the potential to age, though highly drinkable at every stage of its development. It's a wine that provokes emotions and wonders in the one drinking it, while reflecting the expression of truth intended by its maker. It is environmentally, socially, and financially sustainable. So as you were saying, there's like those four pillars, which is the blick, very objective, balance, length, intensity, complexity, something very subjective. I remember everything. It was 1978 and my granddad was opening that bottle of port, something which is very linked to the maker. So regardless of the price point, because as you can see, price doesn't come into that definition, but regardless of the price point, the winemaker has done its best. So it's the best of what they can do with what they are given. And it's like they've put, fine wine doesn't happen by mistake. Everything has been thought after through and through. And the last thing, and that, that was the last dimension that was added after the last think tank, was that dimension of sustainability. So even if we clearly understand that sustainability is a complex question and that it doesn't, It means everything and nothing at the same time. But at least it needs to have a dimension of thinking about how can I do... Because it's so linked to time, it has to have given some thought of how they are going to be there in a hundred years' time or at least in a 50 years' time. And then the dimension of price comes only when we do quantitative study. And so when we have to compare different markets and we can't really compare apple and oranges and let people just go into the study without having any kind of, of frame... And so the frame, the price frame and the price brackets that we chose are the ones that Mestreza work with on the Place de Bordeaux. So the type of price point they deal with. And there's usually like three price tiers. The first one starting at 30 euros, the second one starting at 150 and the third one starting at 450 euros plus. But again, it's only because we have to have that for quantitative study that we put a price on fine wine. 
right? Well, well, the price does help differentiate <laughs> wines, or I think to be sustainable to do all those things. The rest of the description of fine wine or definition of you fine can't wine, be cheap. Exactly. Yes, exactly. That's for sure. <laughs> you can't be cheap. So, looking a little more at the fine wine consumer, which was the focus of this report. One of the really interesting things that I thought last time that we learned was that the fine wine consumers are very loyal, but more to wine merchants versus to wine brands. Is that consistent with the new research? So we've asked really way more questions this time than we asked last time. And one of the things that we asked people was when they thought about, one of the things we wanted to know is, did consumers thought about fine wine in terms of brand or chateau? or wine-growing regions, or a variety, or anything. And across the four markets, very clearly, it seems that the fine wine consumers think of fine wine through brands or chateaus. And I want to differentiate that because brands, I think it's not really a European concept. We can't really talk about, you know, Chateau Latour being a brand, not that exactly. But that's how they think. Like, they can quote on average 2.5 names of domain or brands. So Lafitte being the most recognized across the four markets. Then Latour and Le Pain in the US and then Petrus in the UK, for example. So they think of fine wine with those names in mind. More than, you know, the second layer is a wine-growing region. But then they don't really think of fine wine through the spectrum of country or grape variety or even a type of wine like red, white, or sparkling. It's really in terms of those, those kind of names. But although they think about fine wines through those types of names, when it comes to merchants, they are still very faithful, and they still expect a lot from the merchant, which also why they are faithful to them, because when a merchant actually manages their expectation, then they with them. They've got, they're not exclusive. They've got several, but if someone's good, then they stay with them. But something they expect from their wine merchant is to bring them diversity. They expect their wine merchant to understand their palate and to recommend something unusual, something that they've never tried based on what they like. So even if they consumers across the board think about the same names, they don't particularly buy them and don't buy them all the time. And when they buy wines, they want diversity. Diversity is very exciting when it comes in terms of origin, in terms of brands, in brands. And in the US in particular, there's really a gap when it comes of age. So the consumers over 35 years of age will quote significantly more brands than the one under 35 years of age. So it's also very associated with, with age in the US, at least. I guess that has to do with the experience of their wine drinking or how they approach wine and the studies? Yes, and all the knowledge or, yeah. Oh, so did you learn any keys to building loyalty with fine wine consumers in this project? Well, again, I think the first thing is customer service. And on top of the classic things that people have told us in 2019, this year on top of everything, so the classic things that people expect from the fine wine supplier is to consistently provide bottles in pristine condition. They really expect the supplier to be in charge for you know, fraud, to guarantee against fraud and to guarantee against bad state of the bottle. They don't want to have to think about that. They want their supplier to really know their palate and to be able to recommend like one-to-one advice on based on what they like. They want to come first 
when it comes to allocations and estates that have very little bottles to sell. They want to have access to exclusive events. And of course, they want like all in for the delivery. They, they want to have easy peasy journey through delivery. They don't want to, like as anyone, I think, <laughs> would like if we could have smooth delivery every time, that would be amazing. And they also expect the supplier to have a through on through quality across the wine list and also to take a stand and to bring them new things. So that's always the case. But then in 2020, what we've seen is they want to access their wine merchant through diverse tools and means. So they want to be able to buy through their website, through the app, maybe through WhatsApp, depending on where they are, or through social media, depending on where they are. But they also want the merchant to keep the human touch. So that was a tricky balance for wine suppliers to be able to have a smoothless digital journey, but also to able to guarantee that human touch, like phoning them or, you know, being in touch with them in some ways and to balance those two things. The website chat boxes with a real person when it's not a... Well, not even like, even more than that. Like, they didn't want 2020 and the rise of digital and the ease of digital, like what 2020 brought to all of us, like the, the fact that it's now easy to buy online. They didn't want that to be responsible for the loss of personal touch. Like they didn't want to disappear into the mass of digital consumers because usually fine wine buyers are amongst the wealthiest, if not all. They don't want to disappear into the mass of customers. They still want to be recognized as someone which is unique. One of the things you didn't mention there was price. How did that come into play with fine wine consumers? Uh, well, in that year, in 2020, we've seen people experience, we've seen people experienced a lot. So it's the same thing as origin, which I, I think was one of the questions that you had before. Because people were in the safety of their home, they were free to experiment. They were safe to experiment also. So they were free to experiment with wines that they wouldn't particularly buy otherwise when they drink in a social that was really mainly the case in China, where the Chinese consumption of fine wine was until then very limited to social gathering and to impress and depending on the people that you would meet, you would have a, a limit of price and you had to reach that price, otherwise you would lose face. Well, if you are in the safety of your home, only the couple of people that are close friends to you, then you can experiment with Italian Super Toscan, for example, that until now have been seen as quite risky or not expensive enough in some social network. If you are stuck at home in the UK and you drink more with your spouse than with your work colleagues, then you also have to take into account your spouse taste and palate, which might not be you know, the same as your pals from work. So that also meant a lot of champagne in the UK. And also people have started to experiment with lesser price point, like some of the super high net worth individual that we follow they were like, yeah, we kind of experiment with wines that like were 30 euros because, you know, that was just for us or that was the perfect time to try those wines. And again, that's something I'm sure that you've seen in the US because people were not buying from restaurants and so didn't have to pay the restaurant price. Like suddenly when they would spend, you know, $300 in a wine list at a restaurant, they had $300 to spend and drink at home. So they had a huge, they could also experiment with a higher price point. So we've seen people spread out their buys in between, less expensive than what they would spend normally, but also more expensive on, on what they would spend normally, both. And in terms of origin, we've also seen people, Bordeaux once again, 
I think in 2019, Bordeaux represented 54% of the LiveX transaction on the secondary market for fine wine. And last year, it was only 42%. So it continues to be like Bordeaux is not the only one origin, of course. Burgundy was still there, but people were experiencing with lower price point or lower appellation. So instead of going for Chassagne, they would go for Saint-Romain, for example, like similar, but less expensive or less recognized. If, you know, they had a, a wine merchant also that would, a wine supplier that, that would help them experiment too. So outside of the wine merchant providing them recommendations, did your research uncover how fine wine consumers choose which wines to buy and does that vary by the region they live in? Well, not that much, funnily enough. There's a couple of informations that are the same across the country. Like when we ask them about the selection criteria and trying to measure what criteria they would use to buy wine, the vintage is always the first one. Like across the major market, it's always in the top one. It's the top one in the UK, China, Hong Kong, and it's like number four in the US. So People buy fine wine through vintage a lot. And that's when then you cross that with the interviews and the qualitative interviews that we do. It's like so important for Bordeaux buyers. And then when you've got Burgundy buyers, vintage is important, but so is the estate. So they would the estate will come into the balance as much as the vintage when for Bordeaux, like the vintage is almost exclusively the thing with the score from critics. And that's where it's interesting to see. So the consumer says the expert tasting notes and ratings are really important, notably in, in Hong Kong and in the UK. But then they say that the recommendation by wine guidebooks or critics are not that important. So interesting. to me, what's interesting is like the score are still very important. And the score from a couple of people that are still very influential in the market are still very important. Because also what's important across the board is price, regardless of the level of wealth. No one wants to pay too much, even if like you're a millionaire, you don't want to pay too much for your first growth. So because people, like, fine wine consumers are usually super aware of the price and what price is right, notably for, you know, the Grand Cru Classé level, for, like the, the Iconics, Californian wines, the Super Toscans, all those wines that are traded on the secondary market, they know the price really well. So the score of critics is something that helps them also set that. Grape variety comes third in, in, in some countries, in three countries. The reputation of the brand and winery comes in also even more for Burgundy buyers than for Bordeaux buyers. And then one of the things that came last was the recommendation of celebrities and influential people. So the fine wine consumers declare itself not influenced by celebrity, but usually celebrity wines are not really in the fine wine space anyway, so... That might also be linked to that. I wonder the point around the critic scores, but not influenced by the guidebooks or don't follow the guidebooks, if that's a reflection of how, and we'd like to explore this more next Chateau, of how critics and scores are used today, where merchants will take you know the bevy of critic scores and tout the highest ones, but consumers aren't really subscribing to those guidebooks or the magazines as much as they used to, at least that's my hypothesis. And so they're not necessarily following the critics, but the merchants are using the score. So the scores are important to justify quality and are still very necessary, but they're not necessarily following specific critics or guidebooks. And I think it's also, as you were saying, like for sure the merchants and all the, the suppliers that we speak to, they all take 
critics and ratings in consideration. And to some extent, all the collectors that we spoke to as well, because again, it's a quick validation of your choice. You know, though it's like if, if that wine has a hundred points across three different critics, then you know it's a safe, it's a safe bet. You can go there, but then, then the description, the notes, the everything that comes across it, and in many webinars that we've been given and, and discussing this result, that's always something that's been of a surprise. Like people realizing sometimes that the story around the fine wine is not that important. Like we think that everything's so important about fine wine, where it comes from and how it's been made and like how many centuries the family's been there and how the dog is net is called and everything. And what we actually found, and I forgot to mention that when you asked me about building loyalty, it's not relevant to every fine wine consumers. Even at the top level, that storytelling is relevant to, I mean, we've identified four categories of high net worth individuals and, and how we behave with fine wine. And across all of them, only for one or two categories, the story would be interesting because they're like deep divers and they want to learn everything. And so for them, the story is relevant. They want to know the dog's name. They want to know the, the rootstock. They, they, they end up being master of wine student or, you know, they end up having some sort of influence because they also recommend wines to their peer and all of that. But then there are also loads of fine wine consumers that couldn't care less about the story. They just want to access wine either through status or generally because that's the one that tastes the best. But they don't really want to spend any time learning about that wine. So I guess to build loyalty with fine wine consumers is also finding the balance, like giving them different level to access information. Do they want to learn about that wine in 30 seconds? And usually they want to know about the price, about if it's a safe bet or not, and if it's the best that they can buy in that type of category? Or do they want to learn about it in like five minutes and then they've got loads of times to learn more about where it comes from and all of that? And that's kind of important because we all assume that fine wine consumers are super interested in wine, which some of them are just really wealthy and they just buy expensive wine because they've got more money. Yeah, I wonder if there's also a correlation with how the wine is sold, whether it's sold through merchants or this is more of a U.S. thing, but sold a lot direct to consumer. And the story might be a lot more important if you have a direct relationship with the with the winery brand or if there's an intermediary. I think for all actors, having different levels of entry and different deep dive, like how much it's important to know how much a consumer wants to know. And because we've been talking about storytelling so much, because wine was bad at storytelling. So suddenly everybody was like into storytelling and we all ended up telling the same story anyway. That, that's true. <laughs> but also some consumers are never going to be interested. Yeah, oh, for sure. And at the highest level of consumers and the highest level of power, of financial power, that's always mm-hmm. going to be the case. That touches a lot into what you mentioned around being an individual and understanding that individuals need so that personalization. Some consumers will not be interested and some will be. And so, yeah, you need to have, as a brand, you need the bevy of tools to address all those different types of consumers. Well, which is what, if you ask me, you know, we've also been talking about direct sales a lot. And, you know, in Europe, trying to learn from California and develop direct sales, which is, you know, nothing more than maybe 20% of the most successful estate here. But direct sales can't give you that. Like a winery can't know the consumers that, well, like usually they don't have the resources to know the consumers that well, because it's not just data 
on their website. It's also knowing them personally, knowing them, the birthday, their wife's birthday, the kid's birthday, like thinking about them as individuals and also because they expect diversity and expand their knowledge. So I think there's a way where wine estates and wine suppliers could work better on supplying this, but I don't see direct sales replacing intermediaries, at least here in Europe, because intermediaries can bring so much value when it comes to touching the fine wine consumers. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Along those lines, I think you also studied why fine wine consumers buy wines, like the top reasons they buy wines. What, what are those? What we've seen is across the four markets, and that surprised part of our members, is that fine wine is more linked to intimate consumption than what people thought initially. So, of course, fine wine is still bought like, you know, for special celebrations, special occasion, but also as a treat to myself or my partner. Because when you have a super expensive bottle of wine, you want to share it with only one or two people. You don't want to be 20 and don't care about the wines. And also for formal social events. And of course, Hong Kong and China scoring higher on that regard than the UK and the US that were more linked to the intimate occasion of buying for gifting, very high in China, more than in any other market, which is not really surprising. To conduct formal wine tasting with friends, that was a third in the UK, a third of the respondent that would buy fine wine for this. To drink on business occasion, apart from China, that was less than a third of the consumers that, that chose that answer. And again, when you look at age, all the people in the US are more inclined to buy vintage wines for moments of relaxation compared to the younger ones. And in China, under 35 are more likely to buy these wines for themselves. And over 35 are more likely to buy fine wine for social, job-related kind of gathering. And I think that's also symptomatic to what we see happening in China is, and COVID in some ways really helped into making fine wine part of their lifestyle and making fine wine a space in people's home when they were eating at home. And I think that's something that's really going to, to develop. We were talking this morning with one of the biggest market agencies specialized in high net worth individuals in China. And Chinese people have had to travel locally because they can't travel internationally, but China has been open for quite a long time. And the first thing that people want to do when they travel mm -hmm. inland is culinary tours so tours that are focused on food. And we were discussing the huge opportunity there is for fine wine to get associated with that because there's really that shift happening in China, even for the younger population, to put food and wine like part of their regular lifestyle. So with the four different markets you studied, what besides the reasons they buy fine wine, were there other big differences between consumers in each market? Well, in terms of who the consumers are, I think, to me, the most interesting, <laughs> maybe I'm a bit biased, point was the gender difference. So when you look at the Western countries, so both UK and the US, you look at who's buying fine wine, you've got 70% men and 30% women. And when you look at Asia, well, China and Hong Kong, it's a 50-50, it's really more balanced. And also that's something that we see very strong into in the luxury market in China is women wanted to buy luxury, which is not usually associated with women. So not just bags and makeup, but they also want to buy cars. They also want to buy watches and they also want to buy wine and alcohol. And that's something that I see as a huge potential for the Western world as well. There's a big 
And notably in the millennials and the younger consumers, I mean, if people want to target the millennials but don't address women, that's a big mistake because there's a lot of millennials, independent, wealthy women working in finance and tech that are also interested in wine. And that would be a mistake not to include them and not to bring them in because they want to be included. Um, that's that's really fascinating because I, being an Asian guy myself, I, <laughs> I thought that would have been the opposite in Asia. Well, actually, it's interesting because... Fine wine in Europe is so entrenched culturally and it's so entrenched to a certain class, to a certain, you know, gender, to a certain race, if we go that way. But it, it, because it's a class product, fine wine, it goes with all the shenanigans that goes around this. And women have never been associated to that. But in Asia, it wasn't part of the culture. So the wealthy, regardless of their gender, accessed the wine the same way at the same level. They started at the same level. They didn't have that, that history to rebalance. And it's the same thing as art and collectible. And it's the same thing in the auction market. The wealthy, younger women in China are super active in the auction market. And that also shows you that there's a big untapped market in Europe, I think, for wealthy women. And in terms of age, what was interesting as well, you know, we also... Look at what Brock Macmillan, of course, is doing with the Silicon Valley Bank report. And we've been hearing, like everyone else, that wine has difficulty to engage with the young consumers and that we're losing market shares to beers or to hot seltzer or anything. When it comes to fine wine, there's way more young consumers that one would assume. And fine wine consumers, the young are still interested in fine wine. So it seems like wine as a beverage category is not really attractive to young consumers. But fine wine, with all the status, with all the extra thing, it's literally like there was two very different products and two different segments. And apparently the fine wine segment and category is really attractive to young consumers across the four markets that we study. So under 35 being the young. Well, it's one of the um, cheapest luxury goods yeah. out there, really, yes. right? When you think of the other luxury goods, they're super expensive. And it's so linked to lifestyle. It's such an easy way to express your lifestyle and who you are in some ways to have that. So. so your research did a deep dive on the collector drinker consumer type that you defined. What did you learn from that? So, and I think you had a question about investors also that I didn't touch based on. And maybe I can start with that, the difference between the collector and the investor. Because a collector can invest, a collector can be an investor but usually a pure investor is not going to be a collector. I don't know if that makes sense. But the collector investor is someone that would spread expense, is purchase of fine wine with like nearly a third of everything. So usually something to buy now, something to lay down and to save and to age and something that if the occasion presents itself, he or she will resell as an investment. So the primary entry is the collector. They want to have a collection that express who they are, really express who they are as a palate and as a wine lover. And sometimes because they buy so much or because they are so aware of the price and the opportunity, the opportunity rises to resell, to make some money. They're very happy with themselves, like anyone else that made a good deal. Everyone's happy when you, you know you rise and the value increase. And they use that money to buy more. Now, the investor is kind of a different profile because the investor usually doesn't buy his, himself or herself. They go to a portfolio manager. It's part of their wealth management. And fine wine is just a diversification of their portfolio. So they don't really know what they buy. 
and they don't really care and they don't really buy it themselves anyway. They will have, you know, uh, wealth management either from their bank or like especially in fine wine that will buy for them, but they don't really care. So again, it's two different things. Like you can engage with a collector who's really interested. Fine wine investment are people that surely most of the time not going to even drink the bottles or know where the bottles are. But that's the same for every kind of collectible. It's the same with art. It's the same with many collectible goods. It's it's that difference between collectors that are invested in the product and investors that just using it as a portfolio management. And both were on the rise in 2020 because not willing to be cynical, but the crisis, the pandemic generally has been beneficial for the wealthiest that in the big majority find themselves more wealthier at the end of 2020. So they had more money, they had less occasion to spend and fine wine was kind of something safe that they could expand their portfolio with. So the collectors bought more to lay down or to drink more at home and to diversify their palate. And the investors also bought a bit more because it was just a way, like a safe way to put their money, the extra money in. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting distinction, an important one. So if we look at consumers from another angle, from the angle of the fine wine brand or Chateau Winery, you did a survey of consumers of what attributes are most important for fine wine. These could be looked at as the qualities a wine brand needs to become a fine wine, which a lot of wineries are really interested in. What were the top three to five attributes? So the one in common, which across what's funny with the attribute is across the board on the full market, you've got the top ones and the bottom ones that are the same. And then in the middle, they differ from east to west again. So the ones that are the same across the board is the capacity to age and evolve through time. So that relationship with time is really important for the consumer. And that's also, I mean, to some extent, we never, with Arini, we never take price into account. But when you think of the wines that have a capacity to evolve through time, it's again, never the cheapest one. And that's, that's in all four markets. Then, again, the high ratings from wine critics is also across all markets, the UK being the lowest. It's almost like the UK consumers find themselves more educated and less needy of the critics and their kind of validation. But it's still, even in the UK, it's, it's still amongst the highest ranked attributes. And then the region of origin is really important also too, so where the wine comes from and is the region of origin has a reputation for quality. And the same can be said to some extent about the producer. Now, the ones that differs from east to west, if I can express myself like this, complexity of taste is really important for the UK and the US. So it's all about, does the wine taste good and does the wine taste the best that a wine can taste in some ways? Is that the best quality of wine that I can find? And that's really important when in Asia, the notion of scarcity and the wine being rare is actually more important than how it tastes. And that's really two different entry points. And if you think about marketing, you're not going to promote the same thing like based on this in Asia and in Europe. And for example, in the UK, it's not scarcity, which is relevant, but typicity. So in the West, again, you want taste and typicity. In the East, you want something which is rare and that it's hard to find. And then what's never highly ranked amongst all of that is price. So it's never wine which is expensive. They never say that, consumers, regardless of where they are. 
a wine worth talking about. So we try to express, you know, Hugh Johnson definition of fine wine. A fine wine is a wine worth talking about. So we translate this as it expresses a story and values that resonates with me. And it's always in the bottom line. Like Again, that storytelling might not be as important as we think, or maybe the story that we tell don't have it. Maybe we just not tell the right story to them. And then the last one is sustainability. So we also ask to be a fine wine as a wine has to be sustainable. And it's always, it's always amongst the three bottom attributes. And we can explain that through, I mean, either the wealthy consumers don't care about sustainability, which could have been the thing when I started to do interviews in 2017, when we had very high net worth individuals that says, oh, it's an interesting question. I never really thought about it. Ask me in five years, because maybe I will care about sustainability at that point. Like, they never really thought about buying the Latour or the Petrus or all of that. Do sustainability matters? So that can be that also it's been changing. And even in Asia, people are now very, very aware of sustainability. But I think my personal interpretation of that is that people don't think that wine can be not sustainable. In the mind of people, fine wine is something natural with, you know, brackets. So they don't see how it can't be sustainable. Hence, they don't see why it should matter. That was an interesting one. It's made by plants. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So based on that, should wine producers de-emphasize those areas or... Well, it's like sustainability, for example, is an interesting one because maybe the consumer doesn't think about wine through the the fine wine through the sustainability prism, but the trade does. So we had a lot of interviews with sommeliers as well and with restaurants through the pandemic and follow how they were dealing with shortening the wine list and the reopenings in different places of the world. And one of the things that was common to all is they had to operate with a shorter wine list. And when they had to operate the shorter wine list, there's a huge proportion of sommeliers when they had to cut wine out or to decide which one to keep on, they did it through the sustainability prism. So if amongst, you know, the 700 wines that they usually work in the wine list, if they had to work with only 60, they would choose the one that on top of being of extreme quality recognized by the consumer, they would have a purpose and would serve something higher than themselves either because they were supporting diversity action or gender diversity or sustainability, even if they were not telling the consumers the reason for themselves, that's, there's a lot of sommeliers that went through that. And the trade in general, and I'm sure it's the same in the network you, you evolve in, the trade is really aware of sustainability. And again, you can't access the consumer if you don't go through the trade. So... That's an interesting point of there's not just the, what the consumer cares about, yes. but what the gatekeepers care about. So to some extent, it doesn't really matter if the consumer cares about sustainability because mm-hmm. you know, like in the future, you might not be able to access the consumer if you're not sustainable. Right. If you're not on the list, the consumer yeah. never has the option to choose you. Yeah. That's interesting. On your point about diversity, diversity and inclusion is a big topic in the world today, and it made it into your research as well. Could you elaborate on what you learned about diversity and inclusion for fine wine consumers? Well, it's a very important topic and it's a very complex topic. But our engagement with, you know, diversity started in 2018. We worked with the London School of Economics and the Department for Inequalities that was at the time led by Professor uh, Beverly Skeggs. And we've done a little study through the network of the Inequalities Institute with fellows all across the world. And we asked them what fine wine was for them. 
And we were expecting a lot of things, but at the time we didn't expect the answer to be fine wine is whiteness. And it's talked about in colonial terms in many countries, you know, including India, including African countries, including even the US. Now, of course, in 2021, fine wine being whiteness is kind of obvious because we've talked about this so much, like so many industries, I think we've realized the lack of representation in the matter. Um, and I think we also realize the complexity of that. And there's very little for the fine wine world to lose, to be more diverse and inclusive. You can be very cynical and just consider the fact that there's a lot of people of color or BIPOC that have a lot of money and it's just a bit stupid not to take it. That could be your only reason. And then you can also, when you talk about sustainability and a fine wine usually talks about terroir and heritage and legacy and survival through time. How can you make sure that everyone survives through time and thrives through time that also should be linked to your ethos and purpose and trying to make sure that your community, whatever it is, wherever you are, also thrive in a balanced way and that it just doesn't support, that fine wine is not just for a very teeny tiny amount of the population. So, I don't know if I answered your question, but yes, there's very little to lose in being more diverse and inclusive. The hard thing is to know how, how really, and how to implement this and, and also to understand that the conversation will be slightly different whether you are in the US or whether you are in different countries in Europe. Because again, the need for more diversity or the systemic inequalities are not going to be the same and the situation of person of colors are not going to be the same, for example, in the UK than in the US. So you can't just copy what the US is doing. And also we had that conversation as an introduction about money, which I think is really important for us if we want to bring more diversity. There's a lot of things that have been over the last year. The fine wine world just thought that if we open the doors to more people of color, they will just come in, which might not be the case. They might not want to be associated with fine wine. And one of the reasons is maybe, you know, when we think about the trade, maybe it's because they would have a better career going for tech or law or finance because they will make way more money than in the fine wine world. So there's so much sub-conversation under that umbrella of diversity, whether you talk about diversity for the consumer, diversity for the trade, diversity for gender, if you're in the US. I mean, we had the conversation about diversity in China this morning. Of course, it's a very different conversation than what's happening in the US at the moment. And it's more focused on gender than on, on race. But those are very important conversations, of course. Yeah, I, I guess one hypothesis would be that having more diversity in the trade could lead to more diversity in the consumers. But then, as you mentioned, the, the economics of that are challenging when you're trying to build and establish yourself. Yes. In the trade, how do you get more representation in the trade? Because again, we kind of assume that if we open the doors, people will like build it and they will come. Maybe we didn't build it the right way for people with a diverse background to come in. Or maybe they don't want to come in because for whatever reason, and I think those reasons are complex and depends on where you're based as well. I think that geographic argument is really fascinating. When I think of China, I don't think of them thinking about diversity that much because I think they think of themselves as a monoculture in a way. Yeah. Outside of gender, were there other insights into what diversity means in China? 
Well, I mean, the conversation wasn't that long because it's all government. It's one of those conversations that the government actually frame. And so it's one of those conversations which is difficult to have because at the moment the government is putting emphasis on sustainability and environment and maybe social issues like the condition in, in, in factories and stuff like this. But I don't think that China's government is there yet to recognize that it has different ethnicity, that it should have more representation. I think the, there's only 10% of women in, within the party members and no women into the board of the party. So I don't think we're there yet for China. I think if we start on environmental and social, that's one first thing. But then other countries in Asia, and notably in Singapore, where there's a lot of European Western influence or wealthy people that also do travel and are not regulated by a central party, then that conversation can take place as well. And for final, and it's important to think about because, I mean, if you are a border producer, you operate in Bordeaux, so you have to think about diversity and what it means locally for your community and your staff and your country. But then you operate in the UK, so you have to understand how the race and class and gender trilogy works in the UK compared to in the US, where you're also going to operate. And of course, you're going to sell a massive amount of wine in China and in Singapore. So that's also why it's such a complex question for the wine world to tackle, because it operates in so many different markets with so many complexities. Yeah, it's going to be an ongoing discussion for yeah. for a while, unfortunately, because in the ideal world, we could just change and have an equal society in, in an instant, but it's not how it's actually going to happen. As you know, Pauline, we ask all our guests at the end of each show for a lasting trend and fizzling fad. And with respect to fine wine consumers, what do you think is a lasting trend that's trending now and will continue on or and a fizzling fad that is popular today, but may not be so in the future? Well, in the lasting trend, or at least I would urge fine wine producers to look at that trend and what's behind that trend is the clean and pure movement, which hasn't, you know, it's not really in the fine wine Era. It's not those kind of wine, but what's happening notably in the US, as you well know, about the vocabulary around clean and pure, to me, is really dangerous because, again, the vocabulary clean and pure are not the more inclusive. And as a European, it kind of rings a bad bell, you know, purity of it race. Means the and, rest is and, not clean. Yeah. <laughs> and, pure. you know, if we're talking about diversity of race, then purity of race is the opposite, right? You can't think about it like this. But what's interesting is the need of, like, what it shows from our society, the fact that people are so confused of what's natural or what, like, people are so far away from what it means to grow something and to agriculture that they need something to simplify that. And they also need to know how they get into their lifestyle, which is what the clean and pure movement have done so well. Not talking about the product, but talking about how that product fits into your own lifestyle. So I think that could be two lessons there for the fine wine world. Really understands that people are don't really understand how wine is made and how agriculture works because you will buy a bag of carrots, which is suitable for vegan. Like if carrots couldn't be suitable for vegan, but you know, there's all that confusion around the notion of agriculture. And the second thing is if something that we can learn about the clean and pure movement is how good they are into placing the product into the lifestyle. So again, about the storytelling, they don't tell the story of the wine, they tell the story of the people that drink the wine. And to some extent, again, back to the fine wine consumer, that 
can be something which is really appealing because, again, we know how it plays on status and reputation and all of that. As the fad, I don't really know. It's something that's going to stop, which is really... I don't think diversity is going to stop in terms of diversity of origin. I think it's going to continue and people are going to be experimenting more and more that fine wine is going to come from every part of the world. What I'm really concerned, I don't know if that answers your question as well, but one of the questions that I have too is what we see, what defines fine wine usually, it's not the local market. It's it's the export market that makes the fine wine fine because it's never your local market that decide that you're a luxury kind of product because it's too accessible. So it has to be exported and it's, you know, the restaurants usually or that are traditional gatekeepers. And with the new trends of consuming locally and not having that many restaurants open for such a long time, how, like, who is going to establish fine wine? Like, who is going to be responsible for that reputation? If people decide suddenly to only drink American wine, how's, you know, the rest of the world's going to react to that if French people, well, French people already just drink French wine. But, <laughs> yeah. but that's an interesting thing that the local versus global paradigm for fine wine is interesting, just like the sustainability, because they normally drunk far away from where they are produced. So how, how does that integrate sustainability, how that local versus global, same thing about the language, how the local language versus the places where the wine is drunk language and culture relevance is also going to be interesting to see how that's going to evolve. That will be interesting. Well, Pauline, thank you so much for sharing your research and insights with us and our audience. And uh, we look forward to continuing. Thank you so much. Maybe see you in two years when we'll have the new ones with new markets. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. cheers.